Welcome to Meltdown to Mastery, empowering women to overcome midlife crisis by rewiring the subconscious mind. Feeling overwhelmed, disillusioned, stuck? We all have. Here we explore inspiration and empowerment to navigate through the tough times and move to a place where hearts soar, minds manifest, and bodies heal. Welcome to Meltdown to Mastery, empowering women to overcome midlife crisis by rewiring the subconscious mind. Feeling overwhelmed, disillusioned, stuck? We all have. Here we explore inspiration and empowerment to navigate through the tough times and move to a place where hearts soar, minds manifest, and bodies heal. Welcome, everyone. Today we have Nathaniel Novasal. Nathaniel is author of the multi-award-winning book, The Meaning of Life. He has been analyzing the drivers of the human sense of meaning for over 30 years. Nathaniel's mission is to help any and all people looking for more meaning in their lives and to have unbiased support in figuring it out for themselves. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thank you so much for having me. Very good to have you. We all wonder what is the meaning of life? And often when we're at our worst pain, we really ask that question. I know I did as a kid. And I think you started asking it when you were very young at the age of five. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was when I was five years old, my father disappeared in the middle of the night and we didn't hear from him for six months. And it turned out he had moved 3,000 miles away. And so I did go out to see him the following summer for three weeks and two days. And when I got home and through the flight and got ready for bed, and then I was just lying in bed by myself, I just experienced this utter emptiness and pain and no self-worth and all this other stuff. And it just felt like someone ripped my heart out of my chest. And I was, while I was sobbing, there's a part of my brain that just thinks of things in a cold, logical way. And it was just saying... This is a fascinating question because I was like, why, what is the point of all this if we're, we're just going to be miserable? And my brain picked up on that and said, that's a fascinating question. The meaning, what is the meaning of life? I wonder if you can answer that. So I spent the next 30 years studying it and I studied philosophy, psychology, religion, and so forth for decades. And I finally just asked myself what information I would impart onto someone else if I were to try to explain it, everything I'd learned. And all these ideas popped in my head of concepts that were necessary to understand and master to find more meaning in your life. And that's how the book got started. I said, hey, I got to write this down. I spent seven years writing it and I finally published it on January 1st of last year. So incredible. And is the new thought movement, like that's a summary of it, isn't it? That you exist to grow through life experience. You know where to focus attention based on your desire. Your belief is your ability to attain an outcome that helps you attain it. And your emotions tell you if you're on track. Yeah, it's a really good point. And he picked up on something really important. So I wanted to stick with, I jokingly call it the unified unified theory of meaning. And it's just a joke. It's a reference to the unified field theory and things like that, or the theory of everything in physics. And I wanted to find a set of concepts that pretty much every philosophy was based on. Because I don't want to tell people how to live. I want to tell them how to think about life in a way so they can live their best lives. That's what's important to me. Because I don't believe that I have any kind of super secret special knowledge of what exactly they should be doing for the rest of their lives. And yet a lot of people write books as if they do. <laughs> and so I wanted to write a book that was agnostic to, to you know, what was the cause of life or what goal you should have or anything like that. And when I started to think about what the core concepts of life are, you are absolutely correct. So you mentioned new thought, law of attraction. A lot of folks know Abraham, the Esther Hicks channel for Abraham. They talk about how ask, believe, receive. And if you break down those two components, asking is you want something, you desire something, and the believe is what's believed. You believe that you can have it and you want it, and therefore you get it. Now, I kept it agnostic to anything non-physical just because I didn't want to write down anything I couldn't prove. And yes, you need desire and belief to succeed. I just leave it at if you want something bad enough and believe you can get it, you will continue to work until you find some way to succeed, whether you believe in non-physical or 
are limited to the physical way of actually striving toward that goal. I don't have a horse in the or dog in the fight, or I don't I don't have a horse in the race, so to speak, um, for that particular question. But yes, it is completely in line with New Thought because even they say that the law of attraction folks say desire and beliefs what you need. They say you're here to live through life experience, and they say the goal is joy, growth, and expansion, which are literally different components of the of the book that I write about. And I love how you say that it's, you don't have the one answer because it's mm-hmm. different for everyone, right? Yeah. And that's what people don't get. When they say, what is the meaning of life? You have to really define your terms because I'm sure you've heard of the term equivocation. When the, when you change the term that you're that you're referring to as you're talking about it, and that's obviously a lot of people use that to be in a nefarious way. But when people talk about meaning, they usually think they mean what's the point, right? Or when they say point, they end up saying outcome or final result or end goal or whatever you want to call it. And the trick is that there is no final outcome. Because even if I gave you one, there's this video game, Civilization, one of my favorites of all time, where basically the goal of the game is you grow a civilization from ancient BC to a big giant civilization, and you invent a space flight, and then you go into space and fly to Alpha and Centauri, and then colonize another planet. And then the credits roll. And the joke that I like to refer to that game is that what if I told you that was the point of life? Is that we're going to build a spaceship, we're going to go to Alpha Centauri, and then boom, we're going to... That's it. That's the point of life. Someone's going to say, and then what? (laughs) Because there's never a final goal. There's always something else. There's always going to be something else. So people looking for some sort of ultimate goal or final goal are doing it wrong. The point of life is growth. It's the journey, as they say, journey, not the destination. It's the continuous betterment or expansion of your own knowledge, of your own abilities, of your own life experiences, so that you can continue to do more, be more, have more, experience more. That's the point. And the goals that you have are just aiming you to be more in a way that actually matters to you. I can't tell you what goal to have. It could be social or physical or spiritual, or it could be career-based. It could be monetary. It could be any of those things. And those are all wonderful things and you pick what you want to do and go after it. So I can't tell you what growth or sorry, goal to have, but I can tell you that growth, which is the point, the definition of life, it's a definition of life. You can look it up. It's the capacity to grow. It's the purpose of life. All living organisms exist to grow. And it's also the significance of life. Everyone wins awards for how much they've succeeded at achieving their, their, their growth goals in life. So it's the meaning of life in the truest scientific sense, but it also helps people make sure that, yeah, they got to define goals for themselves. They want to define future states for themselves that they want to get to, but they have to learn that the growth is the point. So don't think of it as some sort of necessary evil to get to your goal. Think of it as this wonderful journey that you're going to undertake and the goal is going to be great, but the journey is going to be great too. Yeah. So, you know what? We often think the goal is the end point, but if we think of it like that, we're actually growing into stagnation when we should always <laughs> change and movement. That's a fantastic point. That is super astute observation there. And why it's so important is that you think about, let's use emotions because that's the chapter, my chapter five. Emotions are feedback. It's actually a very big red herring or misnomer. People say that happiness is the meaning of life and that is completely and objectively and scientifically false. Happiness is a feedback mechanism telling you whether you're growing or being harmed. So if you're happy, you're growing, you're thriving. If you're fearful or in pain or depressed, then you're obviously not growing, right? So it's an indicator, it's feedback, it's an outcome. It's not the point. Once you identify the point of growth and you have a goal and you move toward it and you're happy, then yeah, sure, of course, you want to be happy. Doing what makes you happy is a more accurate term, a description of the meaning of life than being happy. But to your point, when you're getting feedback on the from your emotions that you're there, you're moving toward it, what happens is when you attain a goal, you feel good. But you eventually get bored, right? You become you either become complacent or you become restless, right? And the point is that you think that a goal is going to make you happy, and it does. And then after a while, you get used to it and your body starts itching for the next, or your brain or whatever, you start itching for the next thing. Why? Because your whole being is geared toward growth. And so people think that, and they lived happily ever after. That's the only, (laughs) what's the word, lie that they're teaching you through those fairy tales is that happily ever after. That's not a, 
That's not a thing. Because if you were happy forever, if one thing made you happy and then that was it, then you would die and have no other accomplishments or anything. You wouldn't do anything. You'd just lie there as a, as a vegetable and do nothing and be happy. And that's actually not much of a life. I think people don't realize that's what they're really thinking that life is, but it's not. You're going to get bored. You're going to get restless. You're going to get take things for granted. And that's intentional. That's the way your biology is set up so you can seek the next growth opportunity. So your point is super astute of the idea that that people who think it's achieving one goal, they achieve it and then they wait around for a while. Yeah, they're either com- becoming complacent or they're become restless and they want then they, they need to seek the next thing instead of thinking that one thing was the thing. Yes, because often we can achieve that goal and then something happens that forces us to the next thing and we'll look back in nostalgia at the goal that we achieved when we should just be moving forward. Yeah. Exactly. I, you say emotions are the barometer, and I often try to get people to key into or listen to their body to pay attention to what feels right. And when you're moving towards something that is on your path or correctly aligned with you, what does it feel like inside your body? Yeah, that's a great question. A little bit of background, if you don't mind. A lot of people say that they don't want to listen to their emotions because their emotions can lie to them. And I want to be clear that emotions never lie to you, but they can be wrong. (laughs) And and the reason why is emotions, you can figure out your emotional state in any given situation with a combination of three factors. And this is as scientific as two plus two equals four. Like literally, these are the only three factors that go into your emotional state. There's your desires plus your beliefs plus your experience. And if you're getting the point, those are the previous three chapters in the book, you learn about experience and you learn about desire, then you learn about belief, and then you learn about emotions. Oh, it's a sum of those three things. How about that? So the, that's it's giving you feedback. Now, if your beliefs are negative or false, then yeah, you're going to feel bad. And those, are those the right things? So a lot of people talk about things like temptation and so forth. And yeah, of course, you can have emotional states where you really want something. And so you have this certain feeling. You, but you can also hack your emotions too. People don't realize. That's why I say happy is in the point because you can do drugs, you can have promiscuous sex, you can, there's all kinds of stuff you could do to feel pleasure and simulate happiness or emulate happiness or create happiness, but it's not actually making you feel fulfilled, which is what we're talking about with meaning. And so that's just a little bit of background, hopefully helps the your audience kind of get a baseline as what we're talking about, about emotional state. Now, in terms of answering your question with regards to how does it feel, That's a really interesting point because each emotion has a physiological response that's associated with it due to evolution to make you prepared for situations that cause that emotional state. For example, the fear state sends all your blood to your extremities so you can get the heck out of there, fight or flight, right? And happiness gives you this warm, fuzzy feeling because it, and love and these other things, because usually you're in an environment with maybe with other people and it's a bonding mechanism or it's a mechanism to help you appreciate where, what state you're in and foster the continued behavior that continues uh, to get that goal, to get that response. So that's what those like feelings are scientifically. Now, in terms of if you're talking about like spiritually and intu- intuition based, I'm not a I'm not an expert on the spiritual intu- intuition side. I'm familiar with it. I've read a lot of stuff on it, but since I can't prove it, I don't really, really talk about it too much. But I will tell you this, that when you have a feeling like jealousy, for example, let's take that. We know that the combination of the three things, so desire, you want something or a person or thing that you believe that you should have that thing or person, but more importantly, probably believe that someone else shouldn't have it or doesn't deserve it. (laughs) And then when you see them, the experience, you see them with that person or thing, you feel jealous. So if you want to change that feeling, what that feedback is giving back to you is that you have that desire, belief, and you're having that experience. So if you want to change that feeling, all you have to do is change the formula, right? So you can say, okay, so you get away from that person, then you're not experiencing anymore. You don't feel as jealous, right? You can change your beliefs. That person deserves that person or thing. And then you feel admiration rather than jealousy. So your jealousy goes away. You can also not want the thing. You can tell yourself the sour grapes story from Aesop, right? Where the, oh, the grapes are sour. So now I don't want them anymore. So now I don't feel bad. I can't get them. So those are all things you can do to change. But your emotional reaction is going to be based on what emotion it is, right? So you're going to feel, some people feel happiness, joy, love in their hearts, which is why they everyone uses heart for the thing. Some people feel pain in their heart, like heartbreak. I know I do. That's a weird thing. But my heart almost literally feels like it's, not literally, but figuratively feels like it's breaking. I feel pain in that area. So that's probably you're going to feel certain emotions 
emotions that are going to come from those sources. And what you want to do is just identify what emotion you're feeling and how you experience it or how you feel it. And that'll help you in the future when you're experiencing mixed emotions. If you feel a combination of things, you'll be able to get that, dissect that mixed mixed emotion. Yeah. It's, it complicates things, doesn't it? Because, and it kind of goes into beliefs because if let's say we're trying to manifest a goal, but we have this inner belief that we're not good enough, we don't deserve it. Then we almost have to clear that first in order to Mm -hmm. forward. Absolutely. That's why most self-help books focus on belief. Because imagine, do you think any book would be successful if the title was called Stop Desiring Things? No, (laughs) that would be a terrible book. So when I give the formula, the reason why they're like, Nate, that's a great formula, but why didn't anyone think about it before? I don't know if anyone didn't think about it before. I just don't think it probably sells because the part that is more inspirational is to say, identify beliefs that are false, that are holding you back and then break through them and then hold better beliefs that are healthy for you or constructive for you and go and live the life of your dreams. That's the story everyone wants to read and hear in the self-help book because they want to feel better. So telling people like to want something else is not exactly the greatest message. So it's probably why people don't focus on it. But you can can generalize your desires. In fact, you were mentioning thought. One of the things that Abraham Hicks says is, is to go general when you want something and it feels bad. And basically what she's saying in this more scientific view is if you want something specific and your belief is low because you don't believe it, then you feel angst, right? So I don't know if I'm going to be able to get that. So she says, go general with stuff that you want to desire. And scientifically, or at least in this formula that I'm describing, all that does is you keep the desire strong. Like I want, let's say you want a specific person. I want Debbie or something. Okay. Debbie's unavailable right now. So, you know, you're screwed. And then you feel bad. So you said, well, it's not that you necessarily want Debbie. Maybe it's you want, oh, I like Debbie's smile, or I like the way she looks at me, or I like, I don't know, she's a really nice person or whatever it is. And so you can generalize that. And then when the law of attraction view, what you're doing is you're more likely to attract it. But I'm going to stick with science just for the sake of argument. If you therefore then believe more that you can have someone who has those features, because there's more than just Debbie or whoever who exists to be able to provide that for you, then you're more likely to look for and see those people in the real world and be open to those opportunities. And therefore, scientifically, provably, you're more likely self-fulfilling prophecy and all those other fun psychological findings. You're more likely to therefore achieve or attain a goal that you really have, which is finding an appropriate mate. Yeah. And it can come in such unexpected ways when we let go a little bit, right? So if there's someone that doesn't even, they've been living someone else's goals and going to school because their parents said they should and becoming a lawyer because that was what's expected of them and or not even knowing what to become. What's the first steps? We've already gone through growth, experience, desire, belief, emotions. I'm just taking it back like a little bit. So, because I often hear this and I even hear my own girls and you can you can guide, but what's your thoughts on that? That's such a good question for me because I lived my entire life trying to generally call perfect child syndrome. But when you have a father disappears and you're raised by a single mother and she doesn't like her job, so she seems miserable most of the time, you try to do everything because you don't want to make her life any worse. Uh, and so I did everything I was told to do, right? I never acted up. I never did anything that wasn't wrong. I never got like a detention or whatever, like a, or a bad grade or anything like that. Cause I was deathly afraid of doing anything to upset my mother. She was the nicest person in the world, but I didn't want to make her any more stressed than I saw her. I did. I lived my entire life by the book. Okay. You're going to graduate from high school with great grades. You're going to go to college with grades. You're going to get a great job. You're going to make a ton of money. You're going to live a successful life. And by the way, I did actually do all of those things. And I even paid off my, my mother's mortgage. So she now owns her home. So like I did all that stuff. I didn't have a lot of money growing up. So I, that was one of my goals, but I really lived at what I thought everyone said the definition of success was like. And it was just, a, I think a couple of years ago, a few years ago now, um, I looked around and I asked myself, I said, what do I want? And I never even bothered to ask that because I was just like, I want to be successful. This is how people define success. This is what I'm going to do. And I happened to luck my way into the job that I do. I advise executives during the day for a living. And, uh, and I'm actually a really good career advisor. So who knew? it was I, The way I got that job was completely random. Some person named Brooke, who I still don't know who Brooke is. You can call her God for all I know. And I wouldn't be able to... 
I wouldn't be able to say, no, actually, I know who Brooke is. Brooke referred me. Someone named Brooke referred me to the company that I started working for at college. Happy to be a research advisor. I happen to be really good at it and love it. I love to learn. I love to teach. And who knows why that happened? Because I certainly didn't even apply for the job, but I got it. It's a wonderful, great story. But when I asked myself what I actually wanted to do, it, it was weird because I didn't really have an answer. It's like, I don't know. And two things that I think will help people who are in my situation and trying to live the way that other people say you should live. And then if you're not happy or whatever, trying to figure out what to do. There are two things you want to do. One is my favorite thing is when people aren't sure, they think they don't have any desires and that's wrong. If you don't know what you want, then you want to know what you want. You will always have a desire. And if that's your desire, that's your desire. You want to know what you want. And that's a good thing. So if you don't know the answer, that's okay. But the thing that people do wrong is they think they can think their way through it. That if they just think long enough, they'll come up with an answer. And that's not true. And I know that from personal experience, I've seen uh, do that and just spend years saying, I'll figure it out. And then some magical thing. It's no, the meaning of life is growth through experience. If you don't know what you want, gain experience by exposing yourself to many different things, seeing what you like, seeing what you don't like. And it's just a simple formula of doing more of what you like and less of what you don't like. That's how you move toward what you want to do with your life. That's how you figure out what you want to do is you just try it and see if you like it. And too many people are like thinking and saying, do I like this? Do I like this about it? I don't like that about it. It's like, how do you even know? You saw someone else did it and do it. And then you're guessing. Do it. Try it. If you don't know if, whether you like a sport, try the sport. You don't like the sport, don't do it anymore. Like people are so afraid of failure, so afraid of not looking good or like looking bad in front of people, or so afraid that they're going to make a mistake that they don't even bother to try. And then they sit there and then wonder why they don't have any meaning or purpose or any goals or drive or, or wondering why they can't figure things out for themselves. It's because they won't let themselves do it. Maybe they have a desire that's socially unacceptable. Like maybe they want, their parents want them to be a doctor and they want to go dance for a living or something. No judgment for me, but maybe those parents are judging. <laughs> and, so they're like, and they say they don't know what they want, but they really do know what they want. They just don't think that speaking of beliefs, they don't think that they can have it or they think if they did it, they'd be poor or whatever it is. And you have to dissect that. You have to identify why you don't know what you want. If you don't have enough information, go get it. If you don't have enough experience to know, go get it. If you really do know what you want, but you're trying to suppress that desire because everyone's telling you you didn't have it, then you need to deal with that. These are all ways to get over that. But once you identify things you like and things you want to do and things you want to be better at, things you want to master, whatever it is, then you go after it and find ways to move in that direction. You don't have to drop everything, quit your job and go move to another country if you feel like that's too much for you. That's fine. It's just a matter of saying, oh, I tend to like this more than I like that. And then say, okay, from the next journey, my next step in my career, next step in my life, whatever, could I add this thing I do and figure out a way to fit it in? And is there something I don't like? I can figure out how to stop doing. And if you just work at it that way, you can move more gradually, but you're welcome to do an extreme thing if you just wake up one day and go, oh, actually, I want to go be a stand up comic in Canada. Okay, then go move there and be a stand up comic. Go ahead. It's not a problem. But you do, don't get discouraged by not knowing what you want because you just give yourself a task to find out what you want and go just experience a bunch of different things until something until something resonates with you. Exactly. So interesting, isn't it? And it's just knowing what the next step is really because and to follow what you're good at or like you say, you're sometimes you're not good at it and that stops us the most. I often tell people to look at a new a child learning a new sport. And they're terrible at it at first, <laughs> but four years later, they they can be brilliant. But we have that stops us often because we'll look silly or not be good enough or all those things at first. And I remember I often tell my girls that when I went to university, I had no clue what I wanted to do in life. Yeah. I just followed my desire, which actually was to dance. And so I went to the dance department at university, but it had a great science background. Mm -hmm. I did not like, I did not realize that the study of movement and biology would lead me into what I really desired to do, which was become a naturopathic doctor 10 years later. But it often in hindsight, you see how one thing led to another. So exactly. I yeah. So it's like not analyzing it too much is what you're saying. 
Yeah. If you get stuck in your own head, you're not doing anything. You're just going to be par- paralyzed and you're just going to get disheartened. That with people like who who are like flipping through, I don't know, I was going to say Twitter or Tinder or whatever. And like, oh, these, this person has, I don't like their eyelashes. <laughs> I don't like this or I don't like that. It's okay. You're never going to find somebody like that way. <laughs> if you're just going to sit there and think negatively all the time about how no one can meet your standards or whatever. So there's a lot of stuff like that where getting inside your own head is going to be detrimental to you. So yeah, go get the experience, go find things you like, focus on the good things, focus on things that you enjoy doing and things that you want to do more of and that sort of thing. And that's the better, the better way to look at it. And I think that as you, as you grow, you can even grow in your own knowledge of yourself. And so you can learn more about what you like and don't like. But honestly, what a lot of people are doing is, and granted, this is a good thing. You can simulate situations in your mind and that's good. So you don't like, oh, I know what, if I fall off a cliff, I'll die. Okay. So maybe I shouldn't do that. That's a good thing. But a lot of people take that a little too far far where they're making a crazy set of assumptions about whether they'll like or not like something. And they don't really have enough information to know that for a fact. And then they therefore change their behavior, meaning that they don't pursue that option or whatever because of those those assumptions that might've been false. And then it stunts their growth. My best, my favorite example of someone who gets through that is if you think about, let's say you like a sport. And I like to give a couple of examples because desire and belief are necessary. You might say insufficient, but they're necessary to succeed, right? By insufficient, maybe their genes and other factors. I tell people not to worry about stuff you can't control because you can't control it. So who cares? But let's take something like a sport because let's say you love basketball, but you're not seven feet tall. Obviously, every and shorter you are than other people, the less advantage you have or the more disadvantage you have to, against them. So maybe it's going to be harder for you to maybe save get into the NBA, for example. But the great news is you can still play that sport just because you're not getting paid millions of dollars to do it. It's not going to stop you from playing it. And then secondly, if you like the industry, you can be an analyst you can or a color commentator. You can be a broadcaster. You can be a coach. You can be a promoter. You can be an agent. There are literally millions of roles in sports. <laughs> and so just because you can't be Tom Brady, maybe for whatever reason, doesn't mean you just don't do anything because that's ridiculous. There are so many things that you can do in the field. And if you love talking about it, then you can go and be, you could start a podcast on basketball or whatever. If you just stop yourself from even thinking about pursuing anything with regards to that because of some sort of limitation that maybe you can control, maybe you can get stronger by going to the gym, or maybe see something you can't control like your height or whatever, then all you're doing though is holding yourself back after that point. So who knows how far you can go? Drew Brees and Doug Flutie and those kinds of folks, they weren't that tall and yet they were quarterbacks in the NFL. So that stuff doesn't stop the people who keep working hard and trying that. But even if you're not going to be the best person in the world at the position, first of all, does that matter? Who cares? If you get to play something you love, who cares whether you're the literal best. There's only one of them in, on planet Earth. It's okay. And then secondly, even if it doesn't work out, you can't make the NFL or whatever, then you can go and do these many other fields and still be part of what you love. And people who shut that down really cut themselves off from happiness and fulfillment because cut out all of those options because they cut out one option. Yes. Who says the NFL is the end game, right? Yes. Your end game could be totally different from that. You just have to follow that excitement. Exactly. Hey, you mentioned the unified field. Can you tell us about that a little bit more before we go on? Oh, I was just, that's just an analogy. When I say unified theory of meaning, when I talk about unified field theory and things like that, there's just an idea in physics that there's, they call it the God particle, for example, is one example of it, that there's an idea that they're trying to identify some of the final years of, of physics, right? So the class of physics, right? So they're like, okay, so you have cells and then went down to atoms and then it's okay. So now you're down to protons, neutrons, electrons. Then they went down to quarks, right? So (laughs) they kept going down further. And so they were just trying to figure out. Then they started, this is where quantum physics comes in and why people, new age and quantum physics became an overlapping thing is because quantum physics is trying to explain what the heck is going on at the smallest levels of matter and of the world. And they started finding weird things like where you shot the shot the particles in opposite directions. And if they started in the same place and had touched each other, then when one thing moved, the one particle moved, the other particle would move no matter how far away they are from each other. So there's the, there's, that's called quantum entanglement, if I remember correctly. My, my memory is terrible. But, uh, but uh, that's the idea that, and people try to apply that to new age and say, if you touch a human being, and then even if you're miles apart, you can think about them, you can think good thoughts, you can influence them for the positive. 
positive if, if you think well about them. And I'm like I said, I don't have because I, I can't prove it. I don't have a commentary on that. But but yeah, sure, people believe that, and I don't see it as impossible and by any means. But the, the most interesting thing in, in quantum physics was that they found that things like came in and out of reality, like in and out of space, like things are just kind of disappear or appear. There's some weird stuff going on in that, on that, on that final frontier there. And it's that kind of stuff that people are trying to figure out, okay, God particle, this idea of coming in and out of space, this quantum entanglement idea that in the pure science world, they're just trying to figure out how quantum mechanics work. But in the new age, they're saying, if all this stuff is possible, if we're all made up of this stuff and we are all this, then what's to stop us from influencing someone from many miles away through our thoughts? What's stopping us from our thoughts causing a vibration or some sort of signal or broadcast or, or frequency that we're operating on as a being that can actually you know, influence other parts of reality? Because they have found that through the observer effect and other parts of physics, that you can actually control or control whether light acts as a wave or a particle based on whether you're observing it. Like they are finding these parallels, at least the new age people are claiming that they're parallels between what people believe spiritually and what's happening at a quantum level. And so that, that's the reference I'm using because it's like a theory of everything, trying to figure out how the world works at that level. And I'm saying, here's how meaning works. And I, that's the the analogy I'm going for. Yeah. yeah and it, it just shows us how connected everything is. And sometimes when your brain is too busy, when you sit in stillness, you can feel like, you know, these things that you're talking about, desires and excitement toward something more than something else. If you sit quietly and listen, and sometimes that knowledge can even come from something greater than our own flesh and blood or something that we're connected to. That's what I love about it is that New thought, law of attraction, all this other stuff, and psychology, actually, they're not that different. I studied it. I had this theory when I was before I started writing the book. I asked myself, what if everyone was right? And it's a weird question to ask, right? Because people say, oh, everyone can't possibly be right because they're diametrically opposed. That's not true at all. And it is funny. I One thing I didn't tell about my background is that I have mild Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder, if you prefer the scientific term. And I've always had trouble making friends. I've had always had trouble understanding human behavior. I've spent decades trying to learn how to behave, whereas other people would come naturally to other people that I would figure out how I could replicate it so I could fit in. Because that stuff doesn't, I'm honest to a fault and these other things. And one of the things that Aspies are known for being really gullible is because you just assume, you always tell the truth, so you assume everyone else is too. And so I'd read all these philosophy and religious books and I always go, yeah, that sounds believable. <laughs> no matter what I read, I could read atheism and I could read spiritual stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, that sounds right. It all sounds right. So I had this question, like, what if everyone is right? What if everyone has a point? How would it all, how could it all fit together? Which is where the unified theory of meaning comes from. But the interesting thing about new age and psychology is they agree on 99% of everything that's really going on. That one final percent is whether there's something non-physical involved or not. And I don't go, I don't put a dog in the fight because I don't want to, because I want to be able to talk to atheists and not have them be like, you're a kook. It's okay. Don't, you don't have to believe in that stuff to understand these eight core principles. They work for the atheists. They work for people who just believe in science and that's it. Um, but they also work for, for the new age crowd because they are actually the fundamental principles that are working in reality that actually back uh, the law of attraction and all these other things. And the reason why it's so interesting is that if you think about psychology, all the stuff you can scientifically prove, you have self-fulfilling prophecy, you have priming. For folks who don't know, that means that if you're primed or your brain is springs to the forefront of your memory, like you see a car and then you start seeing that car everywhere. So well, you are primed to think that. Other people think it's a subconscious operating thing where you can get a question, you can just forget about it for a while. And everyone says, oh, that I thought about it in the shower kind of thing. It's because that's finally your, your conscious mind slows down and your unconscious has a time to pop up ideas. And joke, I don't care what the causal mechanism is. I, but to be truthful, I don't want to. I don't want to pick one, pick a, what the actual cause is. But whether you believe in psychology and that it's your subconscious mind, you're letting your conscious mind fall away, and then your subconscious is processing information and popping out an answer for you, or whether you believe in law of attraction or some sort of intuition, or you believe in God. I don't care what the cause is. It works. It really is a thing. When you ask a question or pose a question to universe, God, your subconscious, whatever, 
and you give it some time to process, you will get an answer. <laughs> and that answer can be in the form of an impulse, as a lot of people say, call it inspired action or whatever. You, and again, I, it doesn't matter. I don't really care who, where it comes from as long as it's true. And it is true. Psychology says, oh, we get these gut instincts. It's your unconscious process of the information. It knows things that you don't. It's seeing things you don't see or consciously process. It's doing stuff on the back end. And then when you get a gut reaction, it's your unconscious having process and telling you what to do. Whether you get that from somewhere else, something non-physical, or whether it's just your brain doing its thing, it doesn't matter to me as long as I can prove how it works. And I can. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of stuff going on and you really should be asking. That's why they tell you word things in positive ways. Don't use negative beliefs. Ask questions and ask for an answer. They're telling you to do things in this way because through priming and self-fulfilling prophecy and subconscious processing, that scientifically does actually make you more likely to attain your goals, see the things you're, see the opportunities and do all that stuff. And if you believe in non-physical that there's help, then you're getting help too. And that's wonderful too. So who cares? It's the same answer regardless of what you believe, which I think is pretty interesting. And that's why I don't think, I think people who are like assuming that these arguments are opposed to one another is silly because other than the non-physical physical argument, everything else is literally identical, just using different words. Yeah. And to remain unbiased and just absorb all of this information because none of us really know. Yeah. You can't say how the universe was formed, whether you think it's the Big Bang or God causing the Big Bang. It's sci- the thing that I think is silly about skeptics, because skeptics, are, it's all mumbo jumbo. Science is a, stu- a study of the physical reality of the physical world or physical laws. Um, if you believe in something non-physical, then by definition, you cannot study it with science. <laughs> it's just, and then they say, I said, imagine you like live in a fishbowl and say there's something outside the fishbowl. It's because I can't get there. It's okay. Well, yeah, by definition, you're a fish. You can't get outside the fishbowl. So yeah, there might be something out there, but you'll never be able to test it because you can't get there. <laughs> um, but, but I will say that the, the, the science is actually getting past the physical world, though. The multiverse theory and things like that, that they're finding evidence of the multiverse. Mm-hmm. And so those skeptics are actually being scientifically disproven. Because what's the difference between the multiverse and believing in God? I, I don't know. I, it, it, all you would have to do is say, oh, there's a multiverse. So there's another dimension. And that dimension exists things in non-physical form. And they, the one thing that's missing is can those non-physical forms from the, other, from the multiverse from another universe cross over? And the answer is either yes or no. <laughs> and if the, let's say, the, let's just assume I, there's no evidence on this. But let's say the answer is yes. The answer is yes. There's your God, there's your non-physical, there's your source energy, there's your whatever, whatever souls that whatever you believe that is, that's it. That would, and it would be scientific, all but scientifically proven at that point. Now, I'm not saying that is because it's not. They just said, hey, there's evidence of the multiverse. But the people who are skeptics say nothing exists other than in the universe. They're becoming, they're at the cusp of being completely disproven because of the multiverse theory and the stuff that they're studying in that realm. Yeah. So may have to start all over again. <laughs> and maybe. <laughs> So number six is ethics. What do you say about that? Because I love the quote, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think if we all lived in that way, we'd have a pretty nice world. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about ethics and support together because basically if I had to summarize those two into one word, it would be cooperation. However, I broke it up into two because there are two mechanisms at play here. The first mechanism is if you're going to maximize your growth, and you live in a world with other living organisms, then the first thing you have to do is minimize harm. That's ethics. The second thing you have to do is then work together, help each other to maximize growth. So you need to minimize harm, maximize growth, or optimize growth to be exact, because technically anyone who likes to eat knows that maximal growth isn't necessarily the right thing, optimal growth. (laughs) And it's minimize harm, optimize growth. And that's why I broke it up in two, because ethics and support and I use the term support because you could be supported by resources. It doesn't have to be living organisms, which is why I didn't call it cooperation because you know a stick can't cooperate with you, but you can use it to get something from a high shelf or something. <laughs> so it can't help you, even though it's not cooperating per se. And so ethics are the rules you live by to live in a society to minimize harm. And, and it's funny, anyone who reads the book, I apologize in advance. It's an 80-page chapter. Sorry, I tried cutting it down and I, didn't, I couldn't imagine cutting down a single word and it would lose the whole picture. But, but basically what I say is that there are two types of ethics. There are negative ethics and positive ethics. These are my words. I made them up, but in these terms, but ethics are don't hurt people. Positive ethics are things like three times a week, right? So ethics, negative ethics are telling you not to do things that will hurt you. 
and positive ethics are doing certain things in a certain way, they will be best. And what I say is that there are things like laws in the world. You wanna, if you want to maximize someone's growth, everyone's going to have their own journey that will, that will maximize or optimize growth for themselves. So what you don't want to do is prescribe ethics, positive ethics, we'll say in that case, because you're going to tell someone the right way to do something and maybe that's not right for them. And so that's why laws are mainly on the negative ethics realm. Don't hurt people. Don't punch them in the face. Don't stab them in the chest. Like Don't do things like that because you're harming them and it's clear and you're not in really inhibiting someone else's growth because they're not able to stab someone else. It's just you can reasonably place restrictions or negative ethics laws to prevent people from doing such things. But then if you say, hey, imagine if you had a society in which you passed a law that said thou shall work out three times a week. And if you only worked out twice and you've got, it's 1130 and you got to work out 30 minutes or something, you're like, oh, I got to do it now. But maybe, you know, your kid's in the hospital and like, I can't get up. It's like, well, do I stay in the hospital and take care of my kid? Or do I get forced, forcibly removed outside to go run for 30 minutes? So I meet my three times a week for 30 minutes threshold that the government has imposed on me. Obviously, I'm making a joke here at how insane that is. But that's truly the case that we live in a world in which we have rules so we don't hurt each other. And then we follow rules in our own lives to live our best lives possible. And so the whole ethics chapter talks about how do you set rules to, to, to minimize harm and how do you set rules for yourself to maximize or optimize your growth? And how do you make sure that you don't impede someone else's right to grow? That's what it really talks about. And I don't pick a dog in the final say, hey, you should be honest or do any of this stuff. I write down that there are basically reasons for doing anything, right? So if someone's trying to kill you, you can you can kill them and it's legal. Obviously, you can't just, I guess I'm my time to die now because someone else wants to kill me. Like, obviously, that's insane. So that's why every ethic has exceptions to it, right? So it's not some sort of universal ethic that you can never do under any circumstance. But there are universal ethics built in biologically. And those three main ones are fairness, reciprocity, and minimal harm to things you care about. And the reason why those three I actually list, because they're biological, are because those are the foundations for a social society, for a social species. They're built into our DNA, right? If someone, if you feel something's unfair, it's a visceral reaction you have and you reciprocate. If someone does something nice for you, you do something nice for them. If they do something mean to you, you want to you know, do something mean to them. And the reason is that those are built into our DNA because those are those reactions, those negative reactions to negative actions are what cause people to follow the rules. If you, there's no penalty or punishment for someone doing something wrong, then they're going to do something wrong. So reciprocation had to be built in our DNA. So if someone wronged us, we smack them in the face and say, don't do that. Because if we don't do that, then that person is going to continue that, that harmful behavior. So those things are built into our DNA and you have to have ethics. Everyone has to have ethics, but I don't tell you which ethics to have. That's one of the things a lot of religions and philosophies do. I don't, other than the three that are near universal, they're built into biology. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm saying they exist. But I do tell you that you need to identify and establish your own set of ethics, but make sure you establish the ones that are going to optimize your growth and minimize your and the people you care about harm, because that's what ethics are all about. Yeah. yeah and when you move forward with this positive or good ethic, mm -hmm. do you think it helps the flow or the movement in the right direction? Ah, that's an interesting question. Let's just take a really benign example. Let's say, because I've been cooking a lot lately, I was so, yeah, stuck inside with the whole COVID thing and you do a lot of cooking inside now. Uh, so I said, hey, why don't I try to get good at this? So maybe I have an ethic of I'm going to always cook when I'm cooking my meat over here. I'm going to cook my vegetables over here. I'm going to I'm going to cook the vegetables five minutes before the meat is done. So it's all hot and ready to eat whenever it all finishes at the same time. So that's a sample positive ethic. I'm going to follow that rule. So I get all my food at the right at a nice, warm, fun to eat temperature all at the same time. I don't have to follow that rule. Again, there's a law. Again, no, thou shalt make the vegetables at the same time you make the meat. And you know, you're just gonna have to have it done five minutes early. Obviously, that's silly. No one's gonna do that. And do I have to am I gonna die if I don't follow the ethic? No, I'm just gonna have cold vegetables when my meat's ready. So, like you you have to, so you can identify the right way to do things to have your optimal growth or optimal happiness or optimal enjoyment, whatever you want to call it. And so you can identify over time through experience, hence experience the best and, and arguably the only teacher. And so you learn things over time to, and you start to establish or adopt these ethics that help you optimize your growth. So that's how you figure them out and how you adopt them and how you move forward with them to succeed. And you can learn them earlier, right? Someone can just tell you, hey, look both ways before you cross. That's a good sample of positive ethics. And no one's lightning is not going to strike you if you don't do it, but a car might strike you if you don't do it. <laughs> you you want to do that. So ethics are things that you can follow to optimize 
optimize your growth, you should definitely learn to find the right ones for you. And yeah, some of them are hard to follow, right? Maybe you should exercise three times a week and you don't go. Maybe you miss a day or whatever. And so is the world going to end if you don't live at the perfect, do everything perfectly all the time? Of course not. So the goal isn't to be perfect. Goal is to just follow rules that are going to be to your benefit. And I would most importantly, because ethics are beliefs, by the way, I should mention ethics are actually a subset of beliefs because rules you follow are assumptions or beliefs you make about how you should behave. So they are beliefs. So ethics, your ethics can be wrong too. So you might, you know that from society, right? So they're like some people who have certain attraction to certain people shouldn't be allowed to act on that. That's the way it used to be. Now it's not. And was it unethical back then and ethical now or whatever? I think I messed up that. <laughs> was it always unethical or was it ethical then and unethical now or whatever? I'm not here to judge anything. I'm just here to say that if people want to experience relationship growth and love and all these other things, and that's the way that they want to pursue it, and that's the option for them, then by all means, you shouldn't restrict their ability to grow and thrive in that way. And so that I would argue is a, arguably a, in today's society, a good way for society's ethics to have evolved because it allows more people to f- reach fulfillment and find love and live their happiest, most fulfilled life. So that's the kind of thing that we see in terms of ethical evolution and how you can learn and adopt ethics that work for you. But you definitely want to check to see if you have any ethics that are actually blatantly hurting you. Like you might, I, I, I joke, they told me to never climb a ladder when I was a kid because you could hurt yourself because it's the number one cause of accidents around the house. So I never climbed a ladder. But if someone's, if your kid's stuck up in a tree and you could get, the only way you get them is to climb a ladder, then you can climb the freaking ladder. <laughs> Don't follow the dumb rule that like you can't climb ladders, climb the ladder. So break the break that weird ethic you have. So identify when you have ethics like that and feel free to change them or update them as, as the reason for the ethic is no longer necessary. Exactly. Beautiful. And it leads to the last one, which is choice. Yeah. And choice was a great way to end it because the one thing about self-help books is that people say, I want someone to take action. I don't just want you to read it. Now me, I, I'm in, I'm indifferent. You can read it. You could not read it. And if you read it, you can take action or not take action. It's your choice. Your life is your choice. So I'm not going to try to influence you. But what I will say is I made the choice after last because I wanted people to end on the idea that they should be making decisions or taking actions as a result of this information, or they might as well not even know it. And so the cool thing about choice is it reminds people that literally you control your own destiny. A lot of people, there's that deterministic versus free will argument, right? And it's one of the few things that drive me nuts. That idea that because I can't exist unless my mother gave birth to me, therefore there's nothing. If this is the only way I could have manifested as a human being because everything that came before caused this to happen. So therefore everything in the future is caused by it. So therefore it's determined. That is the dumbest. (laughs) It sounds right. It sounds right. But I don't mean to be a jerk about this, but it's very dumb. Like I, I can choose to hang up this Zoom meeting right now. I can choose to <laughs> I could choose to go run outside naked if I wanted to. I could choose, I could literally choose anything. So like this idea that somehow that I only had one option because of my genetics or some BS like that, it's just silly. Because you choose your beliefs and you act often as a result of your beliefs. So if I speak in the clothing, if I choose to wear a polo and was right because I believe that a polo is a common thing that people wear. I'm not going to go out and wear a Lord of the Rings hat just walking around wearing an elf hat or something or a crown or whatever just while walking around the street. But if I'm going to a, a cosplay conference, uh, cosplay uh, event, then yeah, I can dress up like that. Everyone's going, oh, you're normal because that's part of the whole thing. Everything you do is a choice. You can make choices about what you believe. You can choose which areas to grow. You can choose which experiences to have. Yes, you can even choose what you want using the sour grapes thing. You can actually influence your own desires through choice. You can choose what ethics you can hold. You can choose whether to get help. You can choose whether to give help. And the one thing you'll notice I skipped you can choose whether or not you're happy. And the reason why is because you can either influence your beliefs, desires, and emotions, or uh, beliefs and desires and experiences, excuse me, which cause your emotional states. You can influence your emotional state that way. Or (laughs) you can just directly say, I choose not to be upset. I choose to be happy. And so literally all the other seven things are choices. And it's a great way to end it because it reminds you of the power you have. And yes, there are things outside your control. I say, identify what those things are and then forget about them because who cares? You can't control them. What's the, what's the difference? And then focus on the things you can control and then try to make your life better by making good choices that 
are make you better off every step of the way. And if you do that, your whole life, the whole life overall is going to be some of your choices. So don't think that, oh, because I didn't get accepted in this super gifted program when I was a kid, or because I didn't learn this when I was a kid, or because this happened, then I'll never, I'll never mount anything. That is complete bunk. What's really happening is yeah, that yes, that thing happened and maybe it didn't put set you back or put you behind from other people at that point in time. But every single moment after that where you are choosing to complain about not doing that thing or not having that thing rather than working toward getting that thing or having that thing or doing that thing or whatever, you are making a choice not to go after it. And that's on you. It's not on your parents. It's not on society. It's not on the universe. It's not on your genetics. It's not on anyone else. It's on you. You made that choice to continue to have that stupid, I'm just kidding, but you have that stupid belief system and you're holding on to it for dear life for some weird reason and you need to let it go if you want to make a better choice to do the thing that will get you to what's going to make you feel fulfilled. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a little flippant there, but, but yeah, that's that's what's going on. It's a yeah. good way to end it because it talks about why your life is a series of choices. Yeah. Interesting that things happen that in the moment seem terrible or unjust or right. But to reframe it and follow your own unique path. Yeah. And one last thing is that I end this, the whole book this way. And I, it's so funny. I wrote it down. And I guess I didn't mean to write the whole book. I could have just said this. If I had to describe how to inject your life with more meaning, yes, you need all eight of those things and you can improve them all. And, but I can actually tell you how to make your life more meaningful in one word. And that word is care. And if you know what I'm going with, this is a cop-out cheat in the sense that caring by definition is, a, is giving meaning to something, right? Because <laughs> if you choose to care about something like, oh, I care about this person or I care about this dog or I care about this, whatever, you now give it significance. You now give it importance in your life. You've now placed meaning on it. So care is the act of assigning meaning to something. So it's a cheat, but it's true. If you choose to care about something or if you do care about something, then you effect, in effect give it meaning. So if you care about your life has meaning. So it's a little bit of a cheat. I think the eight things are better, but if you were to summarize it in one thing, just remember, just ask yourself if you care about something. If you care about it, then it has meaning to you, then do more of it. If you don't care about it, then ask yourself why, and you can do one of two things. You can either forget about it, that part of your life. So let's say, oh, I don't like, I don't know, I don't like disaster movies, but I keep going to them because when I was a kid, my friends wanted to go to see disaster movies and I hate them. Okay, stop going to see them. <laughs> Who cares? Stop. You're not with those friends anymore. Get, don't watch them. <laughs> or on the other hand, you can choose to care more about something. Find a reason to care about it, right? So if you don't, oh, I don't care about math. Okay. Do you like, I don't know. Do you like gambling? Do you like games? Do you like this? Do you like that? Do you like throwing a football? Okay. Focus on math problems that put it through the lens of, oh, I play football. Math that tells you the probability of winning in a gambling activity like poker or something. Find a reason to like that thing and you'll like that thing. So find a reason to care and you'll be better off. So it's a great way to end the the book. I put it in the conclusion there that caring is this sense of assigning meaning. So if you're ever wondering whether how to inject more things, more meaning into your life, just find a reason to care about it. Really? That is a great way of summarizing it. Thank you so much. And how do people find you? Sure. I have a website called yourmeaninginlife.com. I have a blog on there. That's like third or fourth to Mark Manson or whatever. So in terms of meaning of life blogs. So you're welcome to check that out. I always just take a thing that I've thought about or a question that people ask and I just write what the way to analyze it through this through this model. And then, and it's free, of course, and no ads or anything. And then also I have social media at Life the Book is my Facebook and Twitter and so forth. And then finally, the book is called The Meaning of Life, A Guide to Finding Your Life's Purpose. My author name is Nathaniel Garrett Novosel. That's the full name. And then the I just came out with a book, multi-author book, speaking of caring, called The X Factor, The Spiritual Secrets Behind Successful Executives and Entrepreneurs, of which I'm the executive side. And it's my chapter, which is just one of many, is on how to learn to care more about what you do and find what you care about. So it's a nice little chapter on that. Beautiful. And I'll be sure to put all those links in the show notes so people can find you. Thank you so much, Nathaniel. It was yeah, really thank beautiful you. and so many gems there. It was just jam-packed. <laughs> yeah. Th thank you so much for your time. And thanks everyone for listening. And for everyone out there, don't forget, don't give away your power to anyone else. Be the creator of your own life. Spiral up, spiral out. <laughs>